verse 17. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that all of your word has relevance to us today. God, even what appears to be just an old love story. I pray today, God, that you would fill me afresh with your spirit, that you would guide and lead me. Lord, that you would uh, serve us today by causing your word to go forth in power and might. And Lord, uh, encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. And Lord, more than anything, just glorify your name during this time. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can tell we have a meal today. Second service is more full. And you can tell it's chilly Sunday because there's more guys here today. <laughs> yeah. We all agree that chili's better the second day, but hey, it's still chilly. Anyway, you know, I found out something this week I didn't know before about the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth was originally part of the book of Judges, which I did not know. I knew it occurred in the same time period as Judges, but I did not know it was part of the same book. And around 450 uh, AD, apparently it was removed and put in, uh, caused a standalone book. So that was interesting. We don't know who the author is, for sure. Uh, many speculate that it was the prophet Samuel. It was written around 1011 through 931 B.C., and as I said, it's this account of a love story between Boaz and Ruth. And the problem is, is that I think so many times that's what we focus on. We focus on this love story when really the main point is not about this relationship between Boaz and Ruth, but rather the main point is this. For us today, because it relates to us, is this. Our kinsman redeemer is always graciously and sovereignly caring for us. That's the thing we see in the book of Ruth. Uh, Going to go through a quick outline and then get you up to date. Here's the outline for the book of, of Ruth. Uh, chapter 1 is Ruth's resolve, her friendship with and devotion to Naomi. Uh, chapter 2 is Ruth's rights. While she's gleaning, Ruth meets Boaz. Finally, Ruth's request in chapter 3. Uh, Ruth asks Boaz to redeem her. And then in chapter 4, Ruth's reward. Boaz marries Ruth and Ruth bears a son. So that's the outline. It's important for me to give you some background to get everybody up to date in case you didn't read the book of Ruth and it's important to know all this stuff. First of all, uh, Ruth and her husband and her two sons were living in uh, Judea, probably around Bethlehem, and uh, a famine hit. So Ruth, her husband, and her two boys leave and they go to, uh, to Moab. And that's where they had, uh, apparently the famine had not hit there. While they were there, Ruth's two sons marry Moabites. Who are the Moabites? The Moabites are pagan descendants of a guy named Lot. Remember him? Lot, Abraham, which part of the land do you want? We'll take this land. And then Sodom and Gomorrah was there and all that stuff. So the Moabites were his pagan descendants. And the sons marry two of uh, these Moabite women. But after 10 years, they have no children still. And then what occurred was that Ruth's or uh, Naomi's husband and her two sons die. So Naomi decides that she is going to go back to Bethlehem. And what she did was she urged her daughters-in-law 
to return to their people, the Moabites, and to remarry, you know, get married again. If you get a chance, read chapter 1. And um, she's saying, listen, I'm too old. I'm not going to have any more sons. And the, what happened was is there was a pattern there that you wouldn't marry to carry on the name, etc. And so she said, just go back to your people. Find someone. Be happy. So in one sense, we see that Naomi was really concerned about her daughters-in-law, that they would uh, find a good life because she knew what her life was uh, looking like in the future. Um, one of her two daughters-in-law, Ruth, uh, decided that she was going to stay with Naomi. She, uh, she decided to leave everything she knew in Moab. That was her home area. She left her family. She left the culture. She left her religion there. She left everything she knew and went with Naomi to Bethlehem, uh, to a country that she did not know. And she devoted herself to Naomi and Naomi's God. Very interesting. Take a look. Ruth chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. In other words, do what she did. Go back to your people. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the, God, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Wow. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. What a daughter-in-law. I've got one daughter-in-law now, and I'm going to have another one in October, and they're both sweet. And uh, Lisa and I are very blessed when we look at our lives. And this Ruth, oh, she was special. She was a Proverbs 31 woman. You know, go back and read that. This Ruth was so compassionate. She saw the situation that her mother-in-law was in, that she had no income, she was poor, uh, and no way of taking care of herself. So Ruth decides to stay with her and, and take care of her, basically. Uh, she was very humble. Ruth was uh, uh, willing to do whatever it took to help uh, make ends meet, and to take care of her mother-in-law. She was faithful. She stood by her side, and she, was, she persevered in difficult times. Um, she knew that there was very little that uh, her mother-in-law had, and there was nothing she had back in her home area. And Ruth, though, was also what Proverbs 31 talks about as a hard worker. Um, what happened is, is that she knew that Naomi uh, needed help, and so she was going to work, and she worked hard. She was a hard worker. You know, it's, it's interesting we see here because we see that, that working hard is a, a, one of the things that the Lord really says is important for us as people, that we would continue to work hard, not look to get handouts and somebody else to take care of it for us, but rather to work hard as much as we could to take care of those things. And we see that in this story uh, so many times how, how uh, God just provided through pe for people. And we'll read about that. Or I'll talk to you about that in a, shortly. But she was a Proverbs 31 woman. And it was really neat because we see the wisdom of God in advance for this group of people, for these two ladies, is that hundreds of years before that, God put something in his law. And it's so important to see this, that in God's law, he made a way for widows with no income and for foreigners to survive 
by gathering grain or a harvest, I should say. They called it gleaning. So, you know, sometimes you, you hear somebody say, hey, I hope you gleaned something from this message. Well, it comes from this principle of gleaning. And what happened is this, is that God commanded the landowners <clears throat> to leave behind some of the harvest. You're supposed to leave it behind. Don't pick it all. Leave some behind. And don't go through the field a second time and pick it all up. It's very interesting what happens here. See, God made a way. And I'm wondering, you know, I, I said this in the first service, I'm wondering if way back when, when God put this as part of his law, he knew it was going to play an important role in the book of Ruth and impact us, show us some truths as well. And what we see is that Ruth was looking at this law and she was going to help her mother-in-law by saying, okay, this is what we can do. I'll go into the fields following the harvesters and I'll pick what's left behind and that will provide for us day in and day out. I remember Lisa's grandfather telling me when times were tough during the Depression, he would walk along the railroad lines in La Crosse and pick up pieces of coal in order to heat their house. And so, in a sense, that was gleaning. That was the same principle here. But they voluntarily were called to leave behind some of the harvest. Well, Ruth went into a field, and she started gleaning, and she ended up being in Boaz's field. Take a look at God's word. I'm going to read Leviticus first, because this is the law that God put in place. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. In other words, don't harvest and go back and check to make sure you got it all. You go through, you take, leave the edges, don't go through a second time, leave some food for the poor. You know what's interesting here? Again, you see the value that God places on work. He didn't tell the harvesters, listen, here's what you do. You go through your field one time, and then the second time you go through again, and you gather all that, and then you put that out for somebody else to take. He sees the value of work. They need to go in there, and they need to follow up, and they need to pick up the harvest that's left behind, the value of work again. I just see that over and over in the Word of God. And that's what he did here. He said, don't leave it there so that the poor can come and harvest it. It goes on and it says, And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall, uh, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So God made a way hundreds of years before to take care of Ruth and Naomi and the poor. And it wasn't a handout in one sense. They did have to work for it, but it was a handout. You know what I'm saying? A hand, I, I like what some people say. We're not giving a handout, we're giving a hand up. And that's what I see happening here. In Ruth, chapter 2, 1 through 3, now Naomi had a, a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come across the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. Now, something started to happen between these two because what Boaz does is, it's very interesting, what Boaz does is he says to his harvester, he said, leave a little extra behind for Ruth. She ends up taking between 30 and 50 pounds of barley home. That's a, that's a score there, man. That's a lot of stuff. <laughs> and... Um, he says, leave him behind. And he goes beyond that. He says, and by the way, I want you to let her 
eat of the stuff that I, food and water that I provide you. What was normal was this, and some of you that have a farming background, you might understand this. You know, when you call, you get your, your, your friends over, maybe pick stones or do some of the harvest, and what would happen is, is you'd ask them to come over. Sometimes you'd pay them, and whether you paid them or not, you always had a meal and something for them to eat after, right? And so basically what was happening is this was the same tradition back then. And so what Boaz was doing was the people that were harvesting his crops, he would have a meal and he would have water or whatever it was, drink for them, and he said, by the way, now you got to let Ruth have some of that too. So he's taking care of Ruth here. It's very interesting. It's a, there's a really sweet uh, underlying thread that's happening in this whole story here. And what we see is, is that he's saying, okay, now, now Ruth ends up in this field. And it's Boaz's field. Who is this Boaz? Again, so wonderful to go and look back in history and find out who this guy was. First of all, he was wealthy. He obviously owned this land. He was a godly man. And he was a son of someone you've probably read about. You remember a lady named Rahab? Rahab, yeah. She's the one that, she was the prostitute from Jericho that hid the spies. That was her boy. Boaz was her son. It's just, it's just amazing to see how God takes broken people and uses them for his purposes and for his plan. And so Boaz is the son of Rahab, and he is a close relative of Naomi's deceased husband. And so what happens is there was another Jewish law that God put into place. So he had this law to take care of the poor. Uh, it was a hand up, but uh, it was a hand up, but not a hand out. And then what happened is, is, is he had this law about relatives, and there was this uh, there was this Jewish law that made Boaz Ruth's kinsman redeemer what in the world is that i mean we live now what's a kinsman redeemer uh a kinsman redeemer was part of a family and and here's what they were responsible for a kinsman redeemer was somebody in the line that could afford or be able to help with this a kinsman redeemer had the responsibility to redeem land that was sold outside of the family okay so if i were to give you a picture of this if your great-great-grandfather had a big farm, 160 acres, and then he died, and they passed it along to the family, and the pieces kept getting smaller and smaller, and there was some, one of the, the family relatives who had a small piece of land and was just poor, so they sold that piece of land outside of the family. You know, a lot of times farmers, what happens is, is when two brothers get part of a farm and then one brother wants to sell it, he says, hey, I'll buy it from you to keep it in the family. Well, that's what a kinsman redeemer was supposed to do, is that if somebody was so poor that they sold part of their family land outside of the family, the kinsman redeemer was called to buy back the land and give it back to the family. Okay? That was part of what he did. Another thing that the kinsman redeemer did was that uh, if somebody in the family sold themselves to slavery, now this is foreign to us because we understand, we think that slavery was always forced. Slavery was not always forced. And if somebody was poor, they could decide to become a slave to someone under conditions that that person would take care of them, give them food and housing, and they would work for them. They would sell themselves into slavery. And so the kinsman redeemer, if there was a family member who sold themselves into slavery, he was called to redeem them. The word redeem is talking about the purchase price of a slave. Okay, so that's why we get a kinsman redeemer. And he would go and he would buy that person out of slavery and free them to be a part of the family again, all right? Another thing that a kinsman redeemer was supposed to do was that uh, if there was somebody in the family who, uh, it was a family name and uh, he did not have any heirs, 
then what happened is the kinsman redeemer would step in and take the wife of one of his deceased brothers or whatever and then have a child give that family name an heir. And that's why it's so important to realize that Ruth's two sons didn't have children by the Moabite women. So she had nobody to carry on Elimelech's family name. And that was important in that culture. It's important in the culture today. I mean, I remember thinking uh, when, when I had my first son, John, it was like there was pressure off of me because, oh, the family name can continue on. I don't know, maybe it's just Dan, but I felt that way. And, um, and I get that, and that's kind of what they were looking at. They were saying, you know what? The kinsman redeemer then has to take the wife and have a, a son so that that family name can go on. And those were some of the responsibilities of a kinsman redeemer. So what happens is, is, uh, is Naomi urges Ruth to ask Boaz to fulfill those duties that he has as a kinsman redeemer. And uh, so they hatch a plan. Take a look what God's word says. He, uh, Ruth chapter 3, 1 and 2. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well for you? You see the heart for her daughter-in-law. Is not Boaz our relative? With, the, with whose young women you were. They were harvesting. Those were his, his uh, servants. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So she plan, sets up a plan. You go to him tonight after he's done harvesting and you lift up the end of his cover and you put it over your legs. And you go, she did what? See, that's our Western mind because we always think the worst, right? But we said, go, go to him. But it wasn't what we think it was. Look what happened at 8, verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Well, I think most of us would be startled, right? <laughs> Probably didn't have to fill that in there, but, you know, whoa, what? <laughs> Things wouldn't go well in my family. <laughs> Lisa's back there going, oh, no. <laughs> he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And we think, wow. What happened here? It was totally appropriate. It was totally appropriate. Uh, what occurred here is that the uncovering of Boaz's feet was a ceremonial act. Okay, that's what it was. It wasn't anything more than that. It was a ceremonial act, and it was completely proper. What was happening was is that Ruth was symbolically asking Boaz to marry her and to uh, raise up heirs to the dead Elimelech. That's what she was doing symbolically. Okay, now I will say this. It could have gone farther, and that's where sin could have come in. Because like I said, this is probably three months after the harvest, uh, after she had met Boaz. And it was something, you know, he kind of liked her, it sounds like, and she kind of liked him, is if you want to read between the lines a little bit there. And so could, they, could it have gone into an improper, immoral area? Yeah, it could have. It could have very easily that night, but it didn't. Because they were concerned that they would remain morally pure for the glory of God. And you know, when you honor God, God will honor you. So what happened is, is they maintained their purity even though they had romantic desires for each other. It's a hard thing to do, to wait until you're married. But that's what she was symbolizing here. That was what was going on. As a matter of fact, Boaz was so concerned about her reputation that what occurred was if you read this story, and, and again, I hope you read through all four of these chapters after the sermon, maybe you'll get a little bit more additional insight. What happened was is he said, listen, I want you to give Ruth some barley, some, some harvest, 
So when she comes home, somebody goes, oh, gone all night. Where were you at? I see you don't have anything from harvesting. What did you do? Right? But instead, he gives her barley so they oh, looks like he, he wanted her to flee the appearance of evil. Wanted to keep her reputation where it rightly should be because nothing did happen. So that's the picture that we have here of what, what occurred. And um, what happened is that uh, if you read in chapter 4, uh, Ruth did, up, did end up marrying Boaz. There was one guy before him. You know, they obviously had this chain of uh, responsibility. And there was one guy in front of Boaz that had the first responsibility to marry Ruth and claim the property. And what happened is, is Boaz goes to this guy and says, hey, by the way, you have the right of first refusal in, in, in our terms. And the guy basically said, no, I don't think so. I don't want Ruth or the property. You can have her. And so Boaz marries Ruth, and they have a child. And so that's how the story ends. It ties up there. And what happens is, is that we're saying as we're going through the, all the books of the Bible, well, where's Christ in this story? Where's Jesus in the story of Ruth? And what, where we find Christ is he is a, uh, Boaz is a type of Jesus. Boaz is a type of Jesus because Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. When you think about it, what happens is that Jesus redeems the spiritually impoverished Jews and Gentiles like us. We had nothing. And he redeems us. We were slaves to sin, bound with the just judgment of eternal separation from God. And there was nothing we could do to get out of it. And so Christ redeemed us by his blood, is what scripture says. By the blood of the lamb, we were redeemed. That was the price paid to buy a slave. And we were redeemed by Jesus' blood. And then, not only that, but what does, what does Scripture say? He makes us co-heirs, part of the family. You're co-heirs with Christ. Kinsman, redeemer. He buys back our inheritance that we lost as we sin. He buys it back. And our names were written in the book of life before anything was created. And he buys us back by his blood on the cross. He's our kinsman redeemer. That's where we see Jesus. That's why I had to go into the explanation. What does a kinsman redeemer do? Because we don't have any idea. And yet this message is about the fact that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. And you can go do a study on that and just get blown up by the love of God and just say, wow, this is who my Jesus is for me. That's why I say that he is the one who is doing this mighty work in this book, you know, the, the word redemption here, there are 23 times where the word redemption is the root word or the word that was being used in this book. Four chapters and 23 times redemption is the foundational word. Isn't that incredible? And that's talking about us. Talking about how God redeems us through the blood of Christ. It's incredible. And that's the main point of this book, that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, graciously and sovereignly caring for us all the time. That's who our God is. What a loving, great, gracious God. And Ruth, Ruth teaches us many 
many things. I'm just going to touch on a few of them because you can say, well, what about this? What about that? There's just a few that I want to touch on. First of all, Ruth teaches us that a godly life is not without difficulties or obstacles. Life can be hard sometimes, but we always have to remember we have a kinsman redeemer who is caring for us. Life can be tough. Life can be really, really hard. We know that in our family. Last year and a half, death of Lisa's mom, death of my mom, uh, the murder of our niece. It's been a tough, tough year and a half. Yet God is still faithful. God is still faithful. God's got a plan in it. I don't know what it is, but someday he'll show me. And I'm sure there are many more than one plan that he is accomplishing. But, you know, we have to be careful that we don't turn out and become like Naomi. Because Naomi, she was so bitter at the hard things in life that she could only see those difficult things. She could not see God's mercy and provision in what he had provided and what he was doing in the background. Take a look at God's word. Ruth 1, 9 through 21. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet. Call me Mara, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. A lot of scholars believe that that word full doesn't mean just that she had a husband and two sons, but that they were probably fairly wealthy. And because of the famine, they went to Moab, and they probably lost all their wealth. So she's coming back dirt poor. She has no husband, no sons. She's dirt poor. She has no hope for her future on how she's going to take care of herself. She's got no income. All her retirement plan is gone. And so she's responding out of that when she comes to uh, Bethlehem. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? In Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous. We don't like that first part there. Because in today's society, especially in the Christian realm, we can have what we call a name it, claim it, prosperity gospel. That if you're a believer, nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. It's just going to be a good life. And if anything bad happens, it's because you don't have enough faith or you don't have enough whatever. Yet the scripture very clearly says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Life on earth is hard. Life on earth is filled with people that are sinners, including you and I. And that causes all kinds of chaos and all kinds of affliction and all kinds of obstacles and difficulties. Yet look at the end of this, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. They're going to happen, but God is there. Your kinsman redeemer is caring for you. It's amazing to see what happens because Naomi is so bitter because of the hard things that are happening in her life that she doesn't see that God broke the famine. It was done. She went back to Bethlehem. She was able to go back to her family. She didn't see the blessing in Ruth. She had a daughter-in-law who was a Proverbs 31 woman that was so beautiful and so kind to her, yet she says, no, God is only against me. It's so easy to fall into that, brothers and sisters, when life gets hard, to just see the negative, to just see the hard things, and let them to consume you and control you and lead you to think ill of the Lord, that he's angry. You know, Ruth didn't sin against him, at least not thing that we find in the book of Ruth. It was just life beating her up. God had a plan, though, in all of it. 
She couldn't see those things. What about you? Are you able to see the hand of God even in the midst of tragedy and difficult times? Or do you lean towards being more like Naomi, only seeing the negative, only seeing the hard things that life throws at us? You know, my wife asked me this week, she said, when, it was, when we're getting all that snow, she said, so how you doing? Because you know, I kind of lean towards the negative at times, and especially seasonal stuff. I said, I'm doing really good. She goes, what? Really? Yeah. I said, in 30 days, it's going to be gone. I'm good. I'm good. And I was talking to someone on the phone, and we were talking about the snow falling down and how God is sovereign over every little snowflake, and he's guiding and directing it. That's where our hope comes in that God is in control. To look and to say, you know what, God, even if I'm in the midst of a really difficult, hard time, help me to acknowledge that. Like I said, we need, we need to acknowledge those things. We don't want to stick our head in the sand and say, oh, no, you know, we just got to claim the positive. You know, you can't say anything negative or that's not faith. Life is hard. Sometimes you got to say, you know, I'm really struggling with this. I'm really having a hard time. Can you help me? Can you pray for me? That's part of being a body. That's part of being real. But in the end, we look to the Lord. We say, I still trust you, Lord. Yet will I praise you. God was in control of all things. All things. Including what appears to be chance and coincidence. She just happened to show up in Boaz's field, right? She just happened to. You know what, brothers and sisters, all of Naomi's trouble was under God's sovereign control. Just like God directed every one of those snowflakes, God is sovereign over every detail of your life. He is sovereign. Even the hard things, not sin, but even the hard things that come. He is, he was the one who was in sovereign control over all the hard things that happened to Naomi, and they were hard things. They were difficult things. But they were part of God's plan. Do you realize that? It was all part of God's plan. It was part of God's plan, those hard, difficult things, in order to bless Naomi, in order to bless Israel, in order to bless the world, and brothers and sisters, in order to bless you and I. They were all part of God's plan to bless you and I, the difficult things that happened to Naomi because of what God did through all that stuff. It's amazing to see. Take a look. Ruth 4, 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they called him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, King David. And you keep going down the line. Jesus. Proverbs 16, 33. A lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign over all things. You know when you play trouble and you pop that little bubble and the number comes up? God's sovereign over that. And somebody was saying to me, after, after the first service, they said, how can God be sovereign? What's God trying to prove over that? I said, you ever play trouble and how frustrating that can get when you play trouble? You know, I can see how God's working out character even in the game of trouble in my life. And Ephesians 3, 10 through 11, so that through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God had a plan. There was a lady named Rahab, a prostitute who hid the spies. And she had a son named Obed, or had a son named Boaz. And he had a wife who was a Moabite, who was raised a pagan. They had a son named Obed. And Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a son named David who was king. And eventually Jesus. Wow. God is amazing. Amazing. Put into play hundreds of years before a a law that you're supposed to leave the fields so that the poor could glean. A law that there would be a thing called a kinsman redeemer. It's amazing. Amazing. And God is still in control of history working it to the end that he desires. And nothing can stop that. Nothing can stop that. He will accomplish all his purposes. And God's purpose for a Christian's life is far greater than our comfort. It's more important than just us being having a comfortable life. You see, a Christian's ordinary life is part of God's plan to displaying his power and his wisdom to the world through common folk like Naomi and Ruth and you and I. God displays his glory through our lives, through the families that we're in, through the places that we're working, through the places that we live because we are testimony to the goodness and the graciousness of our kinsman redeemer, our God, our Savior, our friend. And it brings glory to God as we walk in a way that is different from the world, yet in the world. And God's name is exalted and glorified because they see these people are different. They handle life differently. That's the point when we read this, that his manifold wisdom might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the world around us. You see, people, it's not because we're so great. That's not why. It's because ordinary people like you and I are cared for by a gracious, loving, kinsman redeemer. His name is Jesus. And he will always be there for you, no matter what. Always taking care, regardless of what it looks like on the outside. Just ask God to open your eyes to be able to see his hand in the other things in your life as well. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We see your wisdom reflected in a kinsman redeemer. We see your wisdom reflected in history by providing ahead of time a process to take care of the poor. Lord, we ask you now that uh, in our lives, if there's a areas where we just can't see past the difficult things. Help us to acknowledge that, to acknowledge the difficulties and to see your hand, God, in different things that are around us. God, that we would put our hope in you, we would find our joy in you. And Lord, whether the circumstances change or not, help us to rejoice in who you are.
and the fact that you are our kinsman redeemer and nobody can take our inheritance. It is secure because of the blood of Christ. Thank you, God, for being so good to us and for taking care of us so well. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship. Thank you.